Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Today our focus will be on verses 18 through 29. Only once in my almost nine years here, well, really the last five years of regular pulpit ministry, have I ever had three weeks off in a row. All I'm going to say is buckle up because I, I'm ready to preach. <laughs> I should have preached this at home once just to get it out. And now, uh, and I am excited about these verses as I am uh, every verse in the Bible. Uh, but verses 18 through 29 really is a wonderful capstone to chapter 12 and what has been building up. Uh, we have had prior in Hebrews 12 this analogy of the Christian life with a race, that we're running a race. And now this comes after all this Christological buildup, that is, Jesus being superior in every way to those things that came before him, forecasting him. And so the superiority of Jesus in all these ways uh, come to this practical reality that you and I are united to him by grace through faith, his gift of faith, and then we are running this race. That's the picture we have, to run it hard, to run it with focus, to stay running even when our knees start to knock. Then it comes, again, to another analogy. But this time, it's more of a, a corporate analogy rather than a, a personal one. Uh, this is about us as citizens of Mount Zion. Hear God's word as we compare Mount Zion with Mount Sinai, which came before it. Mount Zion now in Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled by our new citizenship or our better access to you and Christ. Father, I pray that the glories of Zion would sit in our hearts and manifest themselves in obedience and gratefulness. Our worship, O oh Lord. I pray that we would be a changed people when we consider heeding your voice, the voice of Mount Zion. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The book of Hebrews is really less a letter, an epistle, and more a sermon. It was distributed in letter form, but really it's written and reads like a sermon. In fact, it's really the quintessential Christ-centered sermon. If we were to devise any sermon today, it should bear the marks that Hebrews bears. That is, uh, this constant picture of Christ is preeminent over all things. A picture, a real picture of our sin. A real picture of the glory and holiness of God and the access we have to God in Christ. It all points back to Christ giving us better access to God now on this side of the cross. Uh, early in the book, we have these comparisons made between Jesus and the angels. He's superior. Jesus and the priesthood, those earthly mediators. He's superior. Jesus and the high priest, the one who gave that yearly offering. He's superior to him. He doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself before he sacrifices for us. On top of all of that, he's superior to the sacrifices themselves in that he offers himself as a sacrifice. He is superior to even Moses, that great icon of the Jewish people. Superior to Abraham. In fact, all those people that they had come to idolize to some degree, they were all given faith by Christ. Superior to all of it. Now, there's a very practical application of the book of Hebrews. I hope you never forget. You know these are books or sermons that are written to real people just like you. And even though there's a, a singular truth that is foundational, there's also a relevancy it has to those people. Those people in their situation were very tempted, brothers and sisters, to go back to the old system. They'd become believers. They weren't given legitimacy by the government. They were viewed as a cult, kind of these fanatics, these crazies who met in homes that were cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper. These labels were given to them. They were persecuted. There was rumors and murmurs of so-and-so missing. Where did they go? Uh, people having land taken away. And these Jewish believers said, listen, at least Judaism has some clout with the government. And in Jerusalem in particular, we have the temple. And it still shows some legitimacy. And people, even though they may hate us, the Romans may despise us, they may persecute us as Jews, at least they have to recognize that we've been around longer than them. So there's something secure in their minds about going back to Judaism. So the whole sermon of Hebrews is telling them, don't go back. There's nothing left to go back to. It's gone. All the things that it forecasted are fulfilled in Christ. Going back on that is going back on the faith completely. In fact, the right application of your Judaism is to come to this point and receive the Savior now, the Messiah who has been forecasted and is superior to all these things. So now the book of Hebrews comes to us, and yet another analogy is given to us, a comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion where we are now. Mount Sinai where they had come from with the receiving of the law to Mount Zion where we together, even us, are with them before the Lord. The place of God's inhabitants with his people, Zion. With favorable access to God now in Christ, we can, we must heed the voice of Mount Zion. Let's consider this from our text. In the first several verses, there is a comparison made between Mount Sinai, that is the access people had to God before Christ on the work on the cross. Let me be clear. The people that had access to God at Mount Sinai were believers. They were God's people. These were not the nations or those who were enemies to God. They were people called together by God, redeemed out of Egypt. These are God's people. So their access to God looks like it does at Mount Sinai. That changes with the advent of Jesus', Jesus is coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. And now the people of God are at Mount Zion. First, let's consider Christ as mediator. He is the mediator of this better covenant now, and it is 
perfectly and beautifully displayed in this comparison. Look at verses 18 through 21. There you have the description of Mount Sinai and access to God before Christ's work on the cross. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may be made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now let's consider closely, phrase by phrase, what Mount Sinai was like, what access to God was like before Christ's work on the cross. Verse 18, this place, Mount Sinai, could be touched, unlike Mount Zion. It could be touched in that it was cold and it was rocky. You could see it. It was physical. It was sharp. It had a sheer ledge. It was possibly damp and dirty, inaccessible. It was there. You could see it. It was physical, but you couldn't do much with it. It could be touched in that sense. Secondly, it's described as having a blazing fire. There was this wild blazing fire raging on the top. You could only get so close to that fire. First of all, you couldn't even ascend it, but if you could, you couldn't get too close because it's a wildfire, not a controlled fire. Partly the definition of fire itself is that it's out of control, that it's wild, that it's consuming, that it's burning, a blazing fire, dangerous. Then there's darkness. A sense of the brightness would come forth against the backdrop, juxtaposed against the blackness, the cloud-covered sky, the darkness. So all focus is on this, this shadowy image of a mountain with a fire on the top and smoke billowing from the fire, but you could only see the smoke as it was just a little bit different shaded than the dark sky that was, it was against. And you have this darkness and this blazing fire, and you have gloom, it says in verse 18. That is the sense that would come upon you when you see it. In Kansas, we probably know what this is like. You've ever looked out and seen that how fast the sky can get dark? and how green it can get when the hail's coming or when tornadoes are starting to be churned out. And there's a sense of gloom, is there not, where you feel the sucking of the wind, a pressure going out of it, and you sense this gloom, and it's just a front. But this is God. And so now this gloom is there about this darkness and this blazing fire and the smoke billowing up, a sense of dread, of judgment, trepidation, terror, alarm, anxiety. All these things fill this sense of gloom as they stand in the presence of God. They have access to, them, to him, brothers and sisters. These are God's people. But this is the reality of in, being in the presence of God before the work of Christ on the cross. Also, it is described in verse 18 as having a tempest. A tempest is a strong, swirling wind, a whirlwind, in fact. It'd be that kind of wind that you can't escape. You know, you can have a strong south wind. That's where the word Kansas comes from, a south wind. Or a strong north wind, and you know where it is, and you can just get behind something. But a swirling wind hits you from every side. You move over here, and it hits you from the back. If you turn around, it hits you from the front. It's a swirling wind. You can't escape it. So you're in the presence of this blackened mountain with sharp, rocky edges, fire on the top, smoke billowing out, black, a sense of gloom, of dread, of anxiety. And the wind blows. That's Mount Sinai. Verse 19, it continues. The sound of a trumpet. And this is not meant to be the Westminster Brass playing your favorite hymns. The sound of the trumpet here is a blast that is alerting you to the fact that the king is here. It's a blast that stops you. It's so loud, you just can't do anything but stop to see where it's coming from. It's coming from everywhere. The sound of a trumpet. 
and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. I've had occasion to be with a child, uh, talking with a child, and their parents yelling at them from the other room. And you could tell the relationship was not healthy. And you could see the dread on the face of the child when they heard the yelling of their father. This, this sense of dread, stop it, tell him to stop. The voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And part of what was so heavy upon them was the, were the rules that they had, these unendurable orders, you might say. Uh, not only did they have to keep track of their households, not only were they walking out with really only what they owned out of Egypt, and here they are standing, going towards this dark and fire-infested mountain, and they're standing at its base, and they have their animals with them, and they've even got to keep track of every sheep so it doesn't even touch the mountain. Because if it does, they have to stone it. That's Mount Sinai. That's the presence of God. Verse 21 is probably the most sobering when you really consider it. So terrifying that Moses trembled with fear. Why do I say this is, uh, this is so telling? Okay, you've just been rescued miraculously by a series of incredible miracles out of Egypt. And God used one man to do it. He didn't even speak very well, but he was powerful. People could see this. He stood before Pharaoh, before Pharaoh, who could have ended his life at any earthly moment, and conducted all of these incredible plagues, led them out. He says, let's walk through this sea, and we follow him, and we see him leading, we see his strength, we see his support, and he goes through, and we go through on dry ground. We get to the other side. Food and water are provided through this mediator, if you will. Then we get there, and we're at this darkened mountain with fire, smoke, black sky, dread, trepidation, gloom, and for some amount of strength, we look to the one who got us there, and his knees are knocking harder than ours are. That's the presence of God at Sinai. Even Moses said, don't look at me, I'm terrified. That's Mount Sinai. It's recorded for us in Exodus 19, where Moses writes, and you shall set limits for the peoples all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the peoples in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the, the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Please note once more, brothers and sisters, these are God's people in God's presence. Imagine for a moment what it's like not to be God's per people. He delivered them from Egypt. Still, he had a means to reveal his greater glory, and Sinai is part of the future picture of the glory of Zion that would come. We would not ever appreciate Zion like we can if it were not for Sinai and what it shows us about our God. And please note, no matter what else is said, we still have the same God. It's the same God, but now we have a mediator. 
and he brings us to Zion. Perhaps the most consistent picture of standing in the presence of God before the work of Christ is captured by the account of what happened right after the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. In Exodus 20, verse 18, here's a great picture of standing before God as God's people before Christ. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. They stood far off is the picture. It's access to God. They're allowed in his presence, but they stood far off. The stark difference between Sinai and Zion in our access is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22, down to verse 24, and we see Mount Zion. What a difference. It starts by saying in verse 22, but you. In other words, adversatively, now you, on this side of the cross, you who are in Christ, you who are united to Christ by grace through faith, who trust him alone for their salvation, you who are running the race, you who do not stand at Mount Sinai, but rather at Mount Zion, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a difference between Sinai and Zion. The God is the same, but the access to that God has changed in Christ. Please note, if you trust in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, this statement is about your citizenship, where you are now is at Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. That means you. Now, understand what Zion is, what it represents. Zion was originally an earthly city, you may be aware. It's a place that David eventually conquered. 2 Samuel and 2nd and 1 Chronicles tells us the story of how he defeated the stronghold of the Jebusites. It's the, the tall point in the, in the greater metro area of Jerusalem of the day that had a fortress on it. And when, when David took the fortress, that was symbolic of taking Jerusalem. And Jerusalem then became the city of David. Uh, it became Zion. They, Zion morphed into a meaning for all of Jerusalem, all of David's city. Eventually, Zion became known as the people of God. If you talked of Zion, you were speaking of God's people. In fact, Revelation applies Zion to the church today. So Zion morphs from this physical place into a symbolic meaning for all that includes God and his people. And then here, it's given the ultimate sense of its meaning the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the place where God and his people reside, his kingdom, his dominion. Let's look at Zion as compared to, to, to Sinai. Verse 22, described as the city of the living God, the relational God, rather than the unapproachable mountain. It's a city where we take up residence. We live there. We move there. We take up our actual living quarters there. We live in Zion. What a difference between Sinai where we stand afar and we see, now we take up residence there. It's described as the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem was symbolic of the place of God's presence before Christ's work on the cross. Now God's real presence is in the heavenly Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD in its true sense, but the heavenly Jerusalem of which we are inhabitants is eternal and it's forever. And God is exacting his expanding of it even now as we speak. Also, it says in verse 22, the home of the innumerable angels in festal gathering. This compares well with Revelation's description of heaven, of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Revelation 5, 11 and 12, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see the difference? Sinai, Jesus is there as part of the triune God. But there's a sense in which it is not redemptively time for him to act in his mediatorial role, but rather for us to all see the holiness and the otherness and the justice of God. And Moses, the human mediator himself, showing how insufficient he could be as he trembles in the presence of God. But now in Zion, Jesus has given us access, and the angels are there in an innumerable amount saying, worthy is him. Worthy is who? The one that gives us citizenship in Zion, that makes us able to access God, to be in his presence. Verse 23 continues, there in the city of Zion is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Then it says the spirits of the righteous made perfect a little bit later. What does this mean? There's, there's some debate on this, but I believe the best way to understand this is that the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven is referring to the church on earth now worshiping God. Those who have not yet gone to glory, uh, the elect as it were, the firstborn being united to Christ, the firstborn of the resurrection of the among many brethren. So he's the firstborn. Those united to Christ are also then considered the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is, those who are enrolled to be there. So we, to make, we make up part of Zion right here on earth. It's not just heaven. It's God's dominion and power overall, extending even to earth and to those who love him here on earth by his power. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. To be made perfect means to be glorified. We're, being, we're in the process now of sanctification, but ultimately we'll be made perfect. We'll be made glory, glorified. So those, made, those spirits of the righteous made perfect are those who have already been glorified, those saints who have gone on before and are now gathered around God's throne worshiping him. Zion includes the innumerable angels, includes the assembly of the firstborn, us on earth, those who are already in heaven. But notice who else is present in Mount Zion. Just like Mount Sinai, verse 23, God, the judge of all, is there. But what's so different? Different. Verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there also in his full mediatorial role. So now we can stand in the presence of the judge. And it's not that the judge just ignores our sins, because Jesus is there. Rather, the judge turns as a father turns to his children and accepts us in Christ because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So now we stand at Mount Sion with the same God who is at Mount Sinai, but the outlook is altogether different. It's altogether better because of Christ the mediator there present also. God's kingdom, his rule and reign over his people through his son, all creation. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and let us not forget what makes this all effective. The second phrase in verse 24 and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't know what heaven will exactly be like with the, with the ultimate manifestation of our being with God will be like, but I'm confident of this. We will never lose sight of the blood. The blood will always be there. We'll always know the blood has sprinkled. We'll always know that the blood has purchased our citizenship there. And this blood is better than any innocent person's. Now, the comparison is made to Abel. Remember Abel? If you were to look at Abel, the Bible doesn't record he did anything wrong. We know he's a sinner because he's born as a human being, conceived in iniquity, as every human being has been after Adam and Eve. But here's Abel, who gave God a good offering, yet he's killed by his wicked brother, and his blood is spilt. You would think there's innocent blood, right? 
here it's saying that Christ's blood is the only blood that's truly innocent. It's better than even Abel's. Better than the greatest human being you can think of is Jesus Christ and his blood shed. The blessings of Mount Zion, brothers and sisters, are great. But there is more here. There is a purpose for the redemption we have. There is a greater objective for our newfound access to the living God through Christ. We have been saved unto good works. There are those are the glories of Mount Zion that we've just considered. But there are responsibilities of Mount Zion that are also outlined for us. Look there with me in verse 25 through 27, where we see how our glorious access to God in Christ compels us to heed his voice. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Again, this is this reference to the people who are considering or weighing in their flesh. Should I go back? Should I turn away from this? And it's saying, see to it that you do not refuse him, covenant people of God. I've called you into covenant. I've released you from your slavery. Don't go back. See to it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they didn't escape. Think of those who tried to rebel against God there at the mountain. Think of the rebellion that came up there at the core of the mountain, at the base of the mountain. What happened to them? They didn't escape. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. It continues in verse 26 with a reference to Haggai, a prophecy. Verse 26 says, At that time his voice shook the earth, talking about the time of Sinai, but now he is promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. I believe what this is referring to is a fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy in Haggai 2, verse 6 and 7. The coming of Christ, and ultimately the ending of the Judaistic system, and ultimately, and most vividly, the destruction of the temple and all that was remaining of the official standing of Israel. The thing that could be shaken on earth, the temple destroyed, replaced with that which cannot be shaken, the church, Zion. In fact, if you listen closely to Haggai 2, 6 and 7, you'll see what Haggai in that exile period is looking forward to happening. Haggai writes, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. That's Christ. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we have this prophecy of Jesus' coming. Some have taken this to be some future millennial thing. Clearly, this is talking about Christ's coming. He comes into the holy temple. His glory fills the temple. He claims this for himself. And then he predicts that no stone will be left unturned. And exactly as his prediction was, in 70 AD it happened. It was shaken, that which can be shaken. But that which stands... Mount Zion stands. This is the fulfillment of the end, the utter official end of the old Judaistic system, totally and completely fulfilled sufficiently by Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. This promotes obedience, brothers and sisters. The coming of Christ fulfills the prophecy. We heed the voice now because he's our father, because we're reunited to him by faith. We're united to him because of Jesus. So obedience is what flows from the glories of Mount Zion as we understand them. But also something else mentioned here which is so crucial. We teach our children this, yet we struggle ourselves sometimes. 
Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful. Grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Gratefulness comes when we're given something we don't deserve. There's nothing that we deserve less than spiritual life. Membership in the kingdom. Adoption as sons and daughters. Grateful. Grateful for the stake he has given us in his kingdom. Gratefulness. So obedience flows from our access to God now at Mount Zion. But gratefulness also should be the natural byproduct. If someone's bitter or if someone thinks God owes them something, at very least they have lost touch with the great grace with which they have been saved. Also, we are given a kingdom focus or encourage and admonish to have a kingdom focus. This is critical. I wish there were more time just now to talk about this one aspect. Look at verse 28 in its totality. Therefore, let us be grateful for what? It doesn't say for receiving personal salvation as such. That's embodied in this concept, but look what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I believe the best way to understand God's kingdom in Scripture is this, and it's as simple as I can do. Picture God's rule and reign as sovereign reign is a circle, as a sphere. That's his sovereign control over all things. Now, according to the good pleasure of his will and according to his determinative plan, there is this allowance made when man rebels, if you will, uh, the circle builds within the circle. God's still sovereign over everything, but now there's a line that, that separates us from God. God is still king over it all, but there's a separation between God and man. So God sends his son to bring those that he has called to himself. And so the circle that's inside the bigger circle starts to get bigger and bigger, or if you will, smaller and smaller, insofar as people come to Christ and they're brought into God's kingdom. And eventually, it will be so that he draws all the people that he's appointed to himself. And he'll receive glory even from those who receive justice. And he'll receive glory from those who turn to him. And all of it will be brought back into the original balance that was there before the fall through Christ. So his kingdom rule, his kingdom has to do with his sphere sovereignty over it all. And so we are now in Mount Zion, but it's expanding. Mount Zion is expanding as he draws more and more people to himself. And ultimately, at his appointed time, when he brings all things to a head in judgment, this circle will be whole again and all will be under God's lordship in the way that it was devised before the fall. His kingdom we're receiving is a process that's going on now as he is winning more and more to himself through the work of his son, through the work of the church. Kingdom focus is granted to us as we recognize the sovereign rule and reign of God the king through Christ. Also, and finally, you might expect the ultimate uh, result of this new access we have to our Father, to God, is revealed there in verse 28 and 29 as well. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What's acceptable worship? Everyone's asking that question today. The so-called worship wars and the debates and discussions. Well, what is acceptable to God? He says right here, give God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I have to be very careful not to be judgmental of other brothers and sisters. That's not my intention. In fact, I think we are too judgmental often in pick, pinpointing little things that someone should do or shouldn't do as if the way we worship is the only way. It's not. There's all, uh, the issue is not the particulars. It has to do with, is it with reverence and awe? 
That's really the ultimate question I would ask all of us to ask of anything. We're uh, ourselves, our personal family time of, times of worship, our times corporately, the church greater. Are we doing so in an acceptable way? That is the way the, the word of God has devised for us to worship. And are we doing it with reverence and awe? I think oftentimes, quite frankly, that what we have instead in the church today is irreverent worship that's awful instead of reverent worship that's with awe. Irreverent awful is really oftentimes what we see today. Please note what it says in this text, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. It doesn't say our God was back at Sinai a consuming fire. It says he still is. The difference is we can come to him in Christ without the same level of distance that was there. But he's still a consuming fire. We ought to treat him as such. Our worship should be with reverence and awe. That's the question we should ask and really pose to this whole debate that's going on in the church today, at least unique to our particular time. Tozer said it well. What is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner. A humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder, an overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father which are in heaven. Tozer captured perfectly, reverence and awe and access. You know, we can come to our Father, but we do so with reverence and awe because of who he is. We're not afraid of him in that sense, but we fear him in the sense of how great he is. But we love him because he's called us into relationships. So everything is done carefully. We do it with reverence and awe. Much worship today, I am afraid, is consumer-driven, market-driven, entertainment-driven, convenience-driven, and even pagan-driven. What do the pagans want? Can you imagine anyone, anyone determining what someone wants by asking what the enemy thinks? And that's how we've devised. I say we because we are part of the greater body of Christ, particularly in our day. Even we have been influenced by pagans rather than what God tells us to do in worship. And I think that the reason for this, oftentimes we're attacking the symptom, which is the way worship looks, rather than the cause. And really the cause, bottom line, brothers and sisters, is that we have such a low view of God. It's a low view of God that drives us to have much of what we see today that looks no better than a circus. In fact, when you walk into many services of worship today in places that call themselves a church, it looks much more like a talent show than it does acceptable and reverent worship before God. We don't have it figured out. We've got a long way to go. But I know this. We should set up some kind of environment that makes us get a glimpse of the transcendent otherness of holy God that we would not be so comfortable as just to walk in with our flip-flops anytime we want and just happy-clappy ourselves for the whole hour. That's not God. 